I've never been good at remembering meeting people. I am actually, literally, terrible at this. Most of my best friends, I can't remember our first interaction. In some cases, this phenomenon is mutual. One notable instance, my friend, previous housemate, co-worker, and fake wife, my aunt Plout, is as close to me as anyone. By now, we've spent many, many years of our life together seeing each other every day, day after day, but neither of us can remember the moment we met each other. We just sort of existed around each other until one day we noticed each other and then we were friends for life. But in some cases, it's a little more awkward. Just this summer, I met a girl, I thought for the first time, here in Oberlin, who quickly became one of my dear friends this year. And then, just a couple weeks ago, she asked me, Do you remember meeting me freshman year? And I said, Did I meet you freshman year? Yes, several times. Oh no, I'm so sorry I didn't remember you. Wait, did I say that each time I met you too? Yeah, I had. Well, at least I remember her now, I guess. Given how terrible I am at remembering first meetings, it seems strange that I'd choose to do a show this week under just that theme. But they're interesting. First meetings, much like first words, can set the stage for a relationship, or they can completely mislead what the relationship will actually be about. I've had more than a couple friends tell me that they didn't actually like me the first time they met me, which sort of makes me wonder if I'm doing something wrong. In any case, you're listening to The Second Page, a radio show of stories on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. I'm your host, Harris Laparoff, and this week's theme is First Meetings. Our first story this week, from my friend, Emma Anderson. I met my partner Liz for the first time seven and a half years ago. It was orientation weekend at Oberlin. I was a dewy-eyed freshman, freshly out as queer, hair freshly coiffed to a clean-cut lesbian look, and incredibly eager to begin my new life as an independent intellectual person. It was Saturday evening, I had just walked out of some orientation diversity seminar and ran into a friend from my high school, surrounded by her dorm mates. Glad to see a familiar face, I asked what she was up to that night. She said she had heard about a great party that was going on, and they were on their way over to Main Street to check it out. You should totally come, she said. Totally, I said, not entirely convinced. Because, you see, not only was this to be my first college party, but my first party ever and I was scared out of my mind. As much as I was glad to be with someone who had an interest in hanging out with me, I wished that we could be on our way to a gathering of nice people drinking tea and discussing their favorite E.E. Cummings poems. In true freshman style, we made our way over to Main Street in a loud group that spanned the entire width of the sidewalk and spilled over into the street. As soon as we rounded the corner and came up on the hardware store, where music blared from the windows of the second floor apartment, My friend's doormates rushed to the door and started up the stairs. I hung back, desperately hoping that someone else would realize that there was more fun to be had elsewhere, maybe somewhere more quiet. As I hesitated at the threshold, I heard a voice from in front of the store windows say, it's a pretty lame party, and there's a $5 cover. I looked over, and there she was, wearing big motorcycle boots a jacket with spiked studs on the collar, and a jet-black punk hairdo. She looked like everything that I wasn't but wanted to be. Confident, edgy, unafraid. She smoked a cigarette as she sat on the ledge in front of the hardware store window, elbows on her knees, too cool for the party. My friend had decided that $5 was too high a price for a college party, and she hung back on the sidewalk and made small talk with the girl on the ledge, who introduced herself as Lizzie. I introduced myself and tried to laugh and nod in all the right places, 
but otherwise kept quiet so she wouldn't realize how helplessly uncool I really was. Something was going off in my brain that I couldn't identify, not yet, but I knew it was worth noting. I knew that I didn't want to leave, even though my heart was pounding in my chest, and I was suddenly even more conscious of all the awkward things my body and clothes were doing. I knew that I wanted to stay and listen to this person talk for as long as she would let me, to find out every tiny thing I could about her. As sure as I felt about those things, there were many things I didn't know in that first meeting. I didn't know that as cool as she looked, she felt just as scared as I was. I didn't know that we had the same unobtrusive cell phone ringtone, that we both liked drinking tea and stargazing, and that soon we would conclude that these things alone meant that we were made for one another. I didn't know that in a mere three months, our new relationship would implode spectacularly, resulting in long-lasting resentment and many late nights listening to sad music, at least on my part. I didn't know that after three years, we would end up back together. And I didn't know that in the end, she would be the person I would choose to spend my life with. Although the animal part of my brain, the part shooting off subdued otherworldly fireworks as I tried not to stare on that September night, might have had an inkling. Emma Anderson is an Oberlin alum from the class of 09. She lives in Seattle and spends her time teaching kids about math, computers, and research skills. Our next story this hour is about meeting not a person, but an object and a concept from Alyssa Sivian. Hi there, my name is Alyssa Sivian, and I'd like to tell you about my first meeting with a freight train. I should explain that I've had a very close um, relationship with trains uh, since I was very, very young. My first word was Thomas, like Thomas the Tank Engine. Uh, I had one of those uh, train tables growing up, and I spent almost all my time um, moving these tiny wooden trains around these tiny, tiny wooden tracks and being absolutely fascinated by it. Um, much later, uh, the first tattoo that I ever got was a map of the Boston public transit system, the rail system, one of the first in the country, um, on my back. Um, I've, I've always been fascinated by them. It's hard to explain why. Um, I think it can be best expressed by the scene from Milo and Otis, if you've ever seen it, um, where the two of them evade this big train that comes towards them, but they end up following the tracks to this meadow where, um, the next stage of their adventures occurs. I've always loved the sense that these very straight lines, these established things planned by humans can also maybe, maybe coexist with the nature that they lead to. At the very least, I just like the idea of maps upon maps upon maps, just the entire network of a rail system encircling this country. And so I've been fascinated by that for a long time. And when I was traveling around during this last winter term, um, on a not quite not legit winter term project called Studies in Youth Transients. I was in Kansas City. I had intended to um, get across from West Virginia, where I just left the band that I'd been touring with, and to California, where I had some friends that I wanted to meet up with. And I gave myself a week, and I spent the first three days uh, hitchhiking, which was stressful, but very, very worth it in its own right. But I got to Kansas City and sort of spent a day with there with a friend um, and woke up on Friday with three days remaining 
with half the country to go and very despairing about being able to get there, particularly after I completely failed to hitchhike further out of the city, despite the advice of a cross punk that I had met a while ago. And so I kind of sat myself down near Union Station. And Union Station in Kansas City is especially different uh, in that freight trains also go by there as well as the Amtrak trains. And so I sat there watching these freight trains go by, these beautiful lines of car carriers linked together, um, lines that looked like they could go on forever, um, all different kinds of cars, grainer cars, box cars, the car carrier cars, um, flatbeds, um, so many, so many things. And one of these beauties um, stopped right in front of me. And I looked at it and saw it stopped there. And I immediately grabbed my pack, jumped to the fence, gashing my knee open, but ran across a couple layers of track in the broad daylight near Union Station and hopped underneath the truck trailer. Not knowing where I was going to be taken, except the general direction was west. But this practice was my first time ever train hopping, uh, freight hopping, catching out, um, something that many people have idealized or wonder about for a long time, uh, a large part of the 1930s hobo culture that um, got cracked down pretty heavily by uh, policing and then sort of left by the wayside of the American life, uh, but picked up by um, the punks and many other people uh, trying to travel uh, cheaply. Um, it is a dangerous practice depending on how you read it and how you do it. Um, in terms of the people, as I encountered, um, the rail workers that I encountered were very sweet um, and mostly worried about me and gave me good advice, which I was lucky to have. Uh, we stopped, when, when freight trains are moving across the country, they stop periodically to maybe change some cars or pick up and leave off crews uh, called crew changes. And I remember my first stop right after I got on this freight train, stopping pull the train pulling up right next to a maintenance car filled with two guys. And they just looked at me, and I looked at them, and they looked at me, and I looked at them. And they drove away, said no word, um, which I was very lucky. That continued um, as I crossed the country. I had not quite run out of money at this point, but I had no food except for cough drops. Um, and so over the next 36 hours, I ate nothing but cough drops um, and had a surprisingly good time of it. It felt a little bit like a religious fast, um, a first time ever doing one. Part of the problem was that when you're on a freight train, you, when, you're, when you're hitchhiking, you, you to a certain extent don't have control, but you can talk with people. You can maybe do things to alter your situation, pick up different rides, look for different opportunities. When you're on a train... You're heaving through the American landscape at 70 miles an hour um, with wind chills up there, highly up there, yeah, even on the sunniest of days, and you sort of have to surrender to it. Uh, there, is, there are ways for those experienced to uh, find which tracks go where, but I was a complete novice and put my faith in this freight train, uh, these rows of tractor trailers on platform beds above me, shielding me from the wind a little bit, but not very much. I handled being outside uh, for about 10 hours very well as we whisked through Kansas, um, unable to navigate because it was too dark. After about the 10th hour is when I started hallucinating and was probably going into hypothermia. Uh, this, the winds were too bad, night was too cold, the sun had set maybe nine hours earlier. And I was ready to get off this train. Um, I saw a 24-hour uh, truck stop called, the, uh, I think, the Hobo Lodge or something, uh, somewhere in the city in Kansas that I thought I'd stop by in. Um, and I was getting off the train where I noticed three cars ahead was one of the cab cars, the things at the, at the, that drive the train, um, that was hooked up by a computer to the main cab, uh, who's completely unmanned, but still operating. Um, and I crawled inside um, the outer room of one of them and was able to get some rest and warm my shivering body. Um, I had previously lost my... In the three weeks of traveling I did before, I'd lost my extra pants, extra shirt, sleeping bag, keys, uh, and a lot else. Uh, I lost my wallet, but I ended up getting it back. So I think must have dozed off for about two hours, um, having stayed up through this night. You really don't 
appreciate how long a night is when you're just sitting up doing nothing but watching it uh, go by. And when I was at my worst, I felt I, the hallucinations that I got took form of being able to see more stars than I have ever been able to see in my life. I still don't know whether that was hallucination or just my eyes seeing better. But when I woke up, uh, I opened the door and there was this orange curtain of light around the landscape. And what followed over the next two hours was the sunrise over what I realized uh, was the northern Texas landscape. The train took a turn south. I had not planned to go to Southern California, but I had friends there. And I could continue up the coast after that. But my phone was dead, and I still had no food, so all there was to do was to read my book, um, watch this, the watch the sunrise, uh, this like golden castle of a sunrise. I've never seen anything like it in my life. As the day continued, um, the wind chill was still really bad, but the sun was uh, very hot. And so what I did was I took off my shirt and removed my jacket. Um, so it was just no shirt, uh, topless. Uh, sunbathing, except then I put my jacket on and opened it, and so the wind was whipping at my back, but I didn't feel it, and I got a pretty nice tan uh, on my breast, stomach, and face um, as I just watched the watched the landscape go by. Um, as we got further into Southern California, towards Southern, sorry, Southern Texas, I started to see more of the mountains, which I had been dreaming about since leaving West Virginia, being able to see what the mountains would look like. Um, uh, unfortunately, being traveling in the winter, you don't get to see a lot of the sunlight, so it got cold again very quickly. And so I went back inside. I did surprise another rail worker while I was in there, but he wasn't angry. He just advised me uh, to be careful. And I opened up an inner door that I hadn't got into and found the inside cab of the car, which had all the operating equipment and these really comfortable seats, the speedometer, some advice, advice things, like a radio and alert system. Um, it was a re- great place to chill out, and I ended up napping and dozing there, cross-checking my map with, with the route that we were taking. Because even when you're traveling, you still I still had a lot of manic energy that I wanted to put somewhere, and that came into navigating. Um, I did decide to get off in Yuma, uh, even though I learned that the train was going towards City of Industry, which is right near Los Angeles, my destination my new destination. I got off in Yuma and had a meal for the first time, uh, which was nice, but not that nice. Part of what was stressful about being in southern, in southern Arizona, despite its beauty, was the many, many, many border crossings that were nearby, um, which also kind of kept an eye out on me, and also the, a lot of um, families and retirees in southern Arizona who are not willing to pick up a hitchhiker. Um, so after failing to hitchhike for a little while, these two rail kids, like sort of your stereotypical rail kids among the punk community, like face tattoos, patches everywhere, spent about five minutes talking to me in this rail jargon that I didn't understand about how I should get uh, to where I intended to go. But the general gist of it was, get back on the rails. I accepted this. Uh, as they left, <laughs> last thing I, they said to me uh, was, um, do you have any weed? I did not. I got back on the rails, uh, sitting in the rail yard, avoiding the rail yard cop, who's your really biggest danger when you're doing something like this, and just watching trains go by. And I found one which stopped and got on it, not knowing where it would go. But again, I got uh, lucky that it kept on going west. And so I began my second day, um, maybe my 36th hour of being on these freight trains. And I was on it for another eight hours as it wound up between the mountains over mountain passes. Um, Probably the most beautiful sight was seeing the sunset over the Salton Sea, uh, just south of uh, Joshua Tree National Park. Uh, My luck is unbelievable, and the way that I was able to get off the half of the country on a ride that, on the same route that was simply just split into two parts, um, that I was able to get it so quickly, that I wasn't seen by the rail yard cop, like being so new at this, um, there was really no way that I was going to that it was going to turn out as well as I thought, but it did. The freight train took me, personally also, um, places that I'd never been before in myself. Uh, you think, think about anxiety very differently when you have only the path that you're on and the 360-degree landscape around you during the day and the whipping winds at night and the stars above. 
um, it's affected a lot of me returning to Oberlin, handling stress differently, handling the way I pick up commitments differently. My departure from this train was rather abrupt in San Bernardino, where the train had been going over mountain passes, but also approaching a more dense industrial area, and thus been going very, very slowly. And I was always already extremely late. And there was a wonder, wonderful little fable that I got to cap it off. I called my friend who was going to see in San Bernardino, who, as it turns out, lived in West L.A. And she said there was a metro that I could take that opened in about five hours. Uh, this was middle of the night at this point. And so I settled myself down. Um, I had done a very good job, very diligent job of being vegan for the first month, last month of being on the road uh, since I had left Orillon after finals. But as I sat down at IHOP, uh, and I found an IHOP, and I sat down there, and I said, it'd be good for me to establish res- residency here, you know, um, to spend a lot of time, eat some all-you-can-eat pancakes, um, and see if I can kill time until four in the, four in the morning. And it was just after the waitress uh, put down a stack of five buttermilk, highly non-vegan pancakes in front of me, that I got that I checked my phone, which had been ringing, and my friend was in her parents' car with their parents, driving the hour and a half drive out to meet me. Um, and it's sort of moments like that where your plans all collapse in front of you, and you just sort of have to accept what comes. It was a far too, far too, far too nice, uh, nice a thing to do. Um, and it was a really beautiful way to erase all illusions of self-reliance uh, in the world. So I guess I really left that train and back into the world of comfort that I'm used that I'm used to and that I grew up in. And that moment in that IHOP hunched over a cup of coffee uh, while the freight train pulled into its destination in the city of industry, uh, Los Angeles, California. Ever since then, it's a meeting that I haven't been able to forget. Uh, you don't often pay attention to it, but really there are rail whistles echoing everywhere you go. Um, they haunted me as I took buses up and down the coast of California, uh, a cross-country bus from Seattle to Milwaukee. I've never forgotten that the trains are there. Um, I never forget the privilege that it takes to be able to ride them, as well as the immense sense of freedom from everything that it gives. Ten miles north of Oberlin, um, you bike a little bit left to you bike a little bit west, and then go up uh, one of the roads that is parallel fifty-eight. Uh, between Amherst and Vermillion, uh, there's a rather large freight yard where trains coming from Buffalo to New York onto Chicago stop. And I haven't gotten out there yet because it's the first week of classes. But really, having met the freight trains for the first time, uh, having learned a little bit about the systems and always learning more, starting to hop, maybe make plans to hop with friends, uh, read more uh, literature about hopping trains, I've realized that that more than anything else is probably the best place I can get therapy on the entirety of this campus, away from the immense density and self-directedness of Oberlin into the vast expanse and surrender of hopping freight trains. Alyssa Sivian is an artist, organizer, traveler, and junior at Oberlin College studying music theory, mathematics, and technical theater. Our next story this hour is from Miriam Gila. You're listening to The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. Inside every closet, there's a picture of Saskatchewan. If I clean my closet, yes, you know that I would find out. So this is probably going to be one of the more liberal interpretations of the theme first meetings, this is something I'm also deeply embarrassed about. Um, I didn't commit a crime, but for some reason it feels like I did. And you're going to think the crime is the first part of the story and it's not. It com- it will be the, the meat of the story. Um, at least in my mind. 
and I guess it begins my freshman year of college, and I fell in love at first sight with someone. Um, he was incredibly charming and charismatic, and I felt like I knew him both physically and emotionally and intellectually in another lifetime. And so what ended up happening is we began this passionate, uh, very stormy affair. Um, I say it's an affair because he had a long-distance girlfriend, and I naively thought that this would be something that would, you know... A lot of people in their freshman year are trying to keep long-distance relationships afloat, and I thought this was, you know, a case, and he would soon forget about her and be with me. And this was not the case, and after we basically had our first um, encounter, he felt devastated at what he had done, kind of treating me like crap in the process, you know, that I was the one who had transgressed, not him. And I'm getting a little off track here. The point is that we began this on and off affair that year. This this is a multi-year story, but I'd say the peak of the affair happened over the month of January when my college gives you the month to basically do whatever the heck you want to do um, and justify it in the name of academic or personal growth. And we're both from the same metropolitan area, so... It was kind of hard to escape each other. And quickly he got over his guilt about having this girlfriend. But he often felt the need to tell me a lot about her. That she was musically gifted. That he wanted to marry her, and all this stuff that sounds absolutely insane in retrospect, but I felt like if I stuck with it, he would ultimately be with me in the end. And that didn't happen, and at least for the purposes of this story, our affair started to die down when I realized it was clear that he was not going to leave her for me. But I was really curious as to why he wouldn't leave her. What was it about her that was so incredible that he wouldn't leave. And so I started investigating, which isn't really that hard to do in the age of the internet. This is about 2005, so this is the height of Live Journal. And so I found her Live Journal and started reading about her. And there's a lot of intrigue about this girl because her father is a D-list actor who, if I told you what film he was in, you would know it and you would know the role that he played. Which was funny because I had actually never, I was one of three people on the planet who had never seen this film before. Um, But I was still really intrigued that she was the daughter of a not really celebrity. And basically what started happening is that over the years, I would check on this blog when I quote-unquote got bored. Um, In the meantime, I was still having a very tempestuous relationship with this guy who refused to call it a relationship, which made it even more confusing. And I developed this complex that I was never good enough as the girlfriends that he was actually dating, even though he was spending just as much time with me as he was with them. So I started learning more about this girl um, by default, by reading about her. I learned about her family, about how she spent her summers. And I became really, really intrigued. And I felt like I was developing a friendship with her and that I had met her in a way. And over the years... This is where it gets embarrassing for me. Over the years, you would think that this is something I would forget about. However, this obsession, which I I feel like I can call it obsession, has blown up. I basically feel at this point that I know 
so much about her that if she were to find out, she'd be incredibly uncomfortable. I feel, I feel conflicted. I feel ashamed that, well, it's complicated. I feel as though I'm not doing anything wrong because she's posting about herself in these public spaces. And if she didn't think about the fact that any stranger could go and read about her, then that's her problem. However, I feel like I, there's a certain, a certain point, maybe like three years after the affair, I should have let go that I didn't. I know everything about her family. I know everything about her faith. So I brought it up because the theme of meeting someone, um, I feel like this really turned that idea of knowing someone on its head for me because I really feel like I know this person, like their hopes and dreams and yada, yada, yada. And yet I have never had an actual meeting with her. During that month of January when we had um, that passionate affair, I was driving down a side street of a very important major street in our city, and all of a sudden I see someone waving in the car behind me, and it takes me a few seconds to figure out what's going on, and I soon figure out that it's the girlfriend and the guy who I was having this affair with. During the time we were in the full-blown affair stage, then he texts me and asks if I want to race down the street with them, which was a stupid idea in many ways, and I declined. I said no. But it's occurring to me now that maybe what is going on is that I came so close to meeting her. I feel like this story is a little out of order because I'm all of a sudden realizing a very key detail that I forgot to mention, which was around Valentine's Day. I ended up getting contacted by her, and of course, I get this IM from a screen name that, just by the content of I knew who it was, and my heart sank, and I thought, oh no, he told her, or she figured it out, and she's going to confront me. She said, I need to do something for this guy for Valentine's Day, because we're far away, and I need the help of some people, and I need some ideas. And so, basically, in, I guess, what is one of the most surreal things I've ever done, I helped a girl plan what to do for Valentine's Day from afar for her boyfriend, with whom I was having a passionate affair. And so we talked on the phone a few times, I gave her some ideas, I felt very resentful that she couldn't come up with her own ideas, and yet he wouldn't even be with me in the in a true sense. And maybe I think it's these first encounters that planted the seed for this obsession because I never really got to meet her. I only had the idea of her that was expressed through this guy about how incredible she was and the car incident and the Valentine's Day planning that suddenly this zen feeling came over me and I feel like there are actually a lot of similarities between her and me and I guess that has a big part of why I've been so interested in her. She um, is currently in the process of moving and trying to figure out what she's doing with her life, and I can that really resonates with me. And I keep trying to find points at which I don't identify with her anymore. There are lots of things I don't identify um, with her about, but I'm trying to come up with a place to stop, and I feel like I can't stop. And I've brought it up in therapy several times, but my therapists never really seem to be particularly concerned about it. I don't really, I feel like I have no incentive. I feel like I want to keep getting to know her. I guess that's my story. And I often wonder what she would do if she knew. Would she be creeped out? Would she be flattered? Would she be shocked? Would she be a mix of the three? I don't know. But I do realize at some point, it does need to stop because I don't think it's healthy to have a one-way relationship like that, even though it harms no one and I'm not technically doing anything wrong. In my heart, it does feel wrong. And I know I should stop. Uh, uh.
Miriam Gila is a graduate student in arts education and is a chronic oversharer. Our next story this hour is from Zoe Madonna. This is the story of how I met Oberlin. I guess you could say that I met Oberlin for the first time at a very young age. My mother's an alum, and she was always very involved in alumni activities, coming here a few times a year for various things that I didn't understand at the time. My first plane ride was to visit Oberlin for my mom's 15th reunion, and there's a baby photo of me sitting in a high chair, baby food smeared all over my face, and I'm wearing a bib that says Oberlin College on it. Anyway, Oberlin was just omnipresent in my life. And as, I, as college became less of a distant prospect and more of something I needed to be thinking about, I made up my mind that I absolutely was not going to go here. I didn't want to do the same thing that my mom did. I didn't want to relive her memories. I was at that phase in my life where everything my parents said was not to be taken seriously. So I made up my mind I was going to go to NYU. Because it was in the city, it was everything about New York that I liked. It was busy, there, was always, there would always be something happening. I would never be bored. And that's where I wanted to go. So when it came time to visit Oberlin as not just the daughter of an alumnus there for commencement, but a prospective student, it was Memorial Day weekend, my junior year of high school, for my mom's 30th reunion. And I made up my mind, I was absolutely not going to like it. They could bring me here, they could show me everything that they wanted me to see, but I was absolutely not going to like this place, and I certainly wasn't going to go to college here. And to me, it seemed like not liking Oberlin would be a relatively easy thing to do. I was on crutches. I had undergone corrective surgery for a problem with my knee a month earlier. I was on crutches, and I couldn't go anywhere without my parents. They gave me a wheelchair, but it wasn't one of the ones you could push yourself. It had the tiny wheels that you push around like a baby stroller. So unless I was going somewhere with my parents' approval and accompaniment, I wasn't going anywhere. So I moved into a room in Price with my brother for commencement. And for the next two days, I got pushed around in that wheelchair, taken to picnics, a few concerts, visited WOBC, and was told not to move from there without my parents coming back to get me. And I was not having a good time. I'd met some, I'd met a few people, but all but one under parental supervision. And I just, I couldn't wait to get home. Then it was time for illumination. And my mom exhorted me, sit down, sit down, sit down on this blanket and have some ice cream. Don't strain yourself. Don't walk around too much. Don't limp around too much. But at this point, I was really tired of sitting down. I'd been sitting down all weekend. So I grabbed my crutches, I pointed myself toward the lights of the glowing circus toys across Tappan Square, and I made my escape. And I asked the rather short woman who was spinning poi and looking like she was having the time of her life if I could give him a try. This woman was Mayan Plout. I didn't know who Mayan Plout was at the time. I'd seen a few of her photos, but and vaguely remembered the name. But what I did not know was that my mind about going to Oberlin, which I had 
thought to be irrevocably set, was about to change. Long and short, I got kidnapped. Well, I'm not sure if you can call it actually kidnapping since I wanted to be kidnapped. But for the rest of the night, I got pushed around in that wheelchair, place to place, and I met Oberlin. We went to see O'Steel, we went to get some ice cream, and we went up North Professor to the back of a house where there may or may not have been fire. I got cold and my aunt's brother, Ben, who had already gotten in and was set to enter in the fall, let me borrow his coat. And they dropped me back off at Price at about oh, midnight, 12.30. And I thought, okay, yeah, I'm going here. I hope. And I guess by the fact that I'm talking to you right now, you know how the story ends, or the point of the story, where I'm standing right now. I was supposed to record this story last night, which would be Sunday night in the comfort of my room, but I'm standing in the stairwell in Tank. And the reason for that is last night, instead of recording the story, I met a prospy at dinner and I proceeded to kidnap him. I took him on a tour of the campus, had him sit in an egg chair, and took him to the Harry and the Potters concert at the SCO, which was such a gloriously frenetic explosion of nerdery, I can't even begin to describe it. And then I got home and requested him on Facebook, and I saw that he'd already posted, getting kidnapped by nerdy college students is awesome. I agree. I like to think that Maybe this happy cycle of introduction to Overland, not as a name on a list of colleges that your guidance counselor gives you, but as the wonderful conglomeration of place and people and ideas that it is can continue. Zoe Madonna is a second-year East Asian Studies major. Most people know her as the girl with the accordion and the ridiculous coat. You're listening to the second page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. I'm Harris Laparoff. We have one more story this hour for you from Hillary Carter. I was trying to decide what story to tell this week. I thought about talking about meeting my boyfriend for the first time, but that first meeting neither of us really had any idea that we would get together. It was kind of just, oh hey, that person's attractive. I thought about t- talking about meeting my internet friend a few years ago, but that, that went pretty well and it wasn't really all that eventful. 
And then I realized, oh, you know, a few years ago, in 2007, um, I had the opportunity to meet a celebrity that I was deeply obsessed with at the time. And that was Stephen Colbert. I had started watching this show when I was a freshman in college, having seen him a few times on The Daily Show before that, but um, I didn't have Comedy Central at home. And I'd um, seen a couple of episodes of that on the internet, so I started watching that at Oberlin. And that led to um, watching The Colbert Report because it debuted that year. And I saw that and I was just completely smitten. The obsession was a little strange to some people, mostly not Oberlin people, because, you know, young women are supposed to be obsessed with people who look like Ryan Gosling or Matthew McConaughey, and they're good-looking gentlemen. That doesn't really, it doesn't really work that way with me. It's, it's hard for me to articulate how it, it does work, because I can think of a lot of reasons to admire Stephen Colbert. I could list a lot of those, and, you know, that was definitely part of the way I felt about him. You know, he's very talented, he's very committed to his performance, etc. So it's that, plus he's just dripping with that southern charm, even without the accent, and, you know, he's a great improviser and comic mind, but he really just sells whatever he's doing with this completely natural charisma, and it's just, it just hooked into my young heart. <laughs> I would watch the show every weeknight that I could. So that's a commitment of two hours a week. Plus, I just searched out and watched anything I could find that had him in it. I adapted a novel he had co-written into a stage reading with some of my friends. And actually, it was while I was doing that uh, that I received an email that I had won the ticket lottery to see a taping of one of his shows. And I was having a difficult semester and I really needed something to look forward to, and this was more than that. This was just, I couldn't even comprehend. As I was slogging through finals, I'd, you know, I'd remind myself that I was going to see Stephen Colbert, and I would just grin like an idiot. So the day finally came, and I was in New York City. I was staying with a friend of my mother's. Uh, I took the subway to Hell's Kitchen, which is where the studio is. It's not like a terrible part of New York City, but, I mean, if you've never been to a TV studio, it's not really the kind of place you'd expect. It's not really glamorous. It still has that kind of gritty look from when it was, you know, all Irish working class people living there. I got to the studio at about, like, 2.30 in the afternoon, and there were only four people who were already there. Uh, two of those people were girls from Minnesota. They had come to the studio without tickets, which... Normally it would mean they'd be on the standby line, but uh, the couple first in line happened to have two extra tickets, and they you know, very generously gave them to these girls. Uh, I introduced myself, and they told me their names were Chelsea and Larissa. The audience coordinator, Mark, had noticed that they had switched lines, and uh, he said technically they were not allowed to just you know use these spare tickets, um, but... He decided he was just going to let it slide. Uh, the girls asked him if Stephen had received a birthday card that they had dropped off at the studio yesterday morning. He confirmed that it had been delivered, but he didn't know any more than that. Larissa said she thought that he'd, you know, let them into the other line because he didn't want to deal with them again tomorrow. Later, Chelsea told me that a pair of her underwear had been enclosed in this birthday card, so I was inclined to think that Larissa was right. So after a few more hours, uh, they let us into the waiting area, uh, which was pretty nondescript, so in general, the TV world was not as glamorous as I expected it to be. So we went through security, and um, someone went over the rules with us, like, we couldn't take pictures in the studio. Uh, we would get to ask Steven some questions before he started taping the show, but we shouldn't ask stupid questions that he'd heard before, or for hugs, autographs, or for his special Formula 401, which if you watch the show, you know what that is. Uh, finally, they let us into the studio, which was tiny. Um, it actually used to be the Daily Show studio before they moved to a bigger one. 
and because I had gotten there so early, I was right in the front row, so I was like 10 feet away from his desk. I was there. That was the place that I saw on the TV four nights a week. So the warm-up comic comes out, and, you know, he tells a few jokes that were kind of cheesy, and uh, then the stage manager comes out and explains to us, I don't know when to applaud, and that it's okay to laugh right from the beginning of the show, and tells us not to do shout-outs because they throw Steven off. Uh, Chelsea and Larissa were whispering each to each other about that one. Um, I guess they had planned to shout, I love you. So the comic introduces Steven and he runs in. Then, oh my god, he's right in front of me. Wow, he was, he was really tall. <laughs> he's, um, giving high fives to everyone in my row and then his hand misses mine. And I'm just totally heartbroken. Um, and then we get to ask him some questions. Uh... There are some guys in line behind me who had managed to smuggle a Hot Pocket into the studio, and um, they wanted Steven to put it in the microwave that he stole from Bill O'Reilly's green room, and right on cue, he does that, you know, Jim Gaffigan, Hot Pocket, and he does it. He put it in the microwave, and then he took a bite out of it when it was done, and then he handed it back to them, and it was pretty awesome. Then he sits down to start taping the show, and... Right off the bat, he, like, messes up the intro. Just totally flubs it. And uh, they tell us that this is the only part of the show that they will retape if he screws up. And at that point, Chelsea and Larissa shout, We love you! And Steven says, Well, that makes it all worth it. And then he does it again, and it's right. And the show's starting. And Chelsea and Larissa are just screaming like crazy. Just every chance they get. At one point, Stephen ad-libs, those people need medical attention. And, like, the stage manager comes out during a commercial break to tell them to, like, calm down already. But, you know, I'm not really that irritated by it because I'm just so psyched to be there. I'm just, I can't believe that I'm actually <laughs> sitting in the studio that this, this show that I've just been obsessing over for past two years. Then, you know, they come to the end of the show and... Steven actually flubbed the outro as well, and they had to redo that. Then they wrapped up the show, and he stood up and told us, I apologize for my ineptitude. And it's like, yeah, like, we really think you're so inept. And then he went off, and the show was over. So they let us outside, and that was when the wait began for him to leave the studio, because I had read online that if you wait after the show, you know, he'll come out and say hi to you and sign autographs, and so it ends up being me waiting around Chelsea and Larissa and uh, one other guy that I hadn't noticed. So I was just, you know, talking to Chelsea and Larissa, and we're waiting. Mark, the audience guy, comes out again and tells us that it might be a long wait, and I asked him, but he's still here, and Mark says that technically he is not allowed to say, um, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not meaning to get you in trouble. And he said something to the effect of if Stephen had left, he wouldn't let us just wait here for him if he wasn't coming. So basically he was still in the building. And he shook all our hands and thanked us for keeping him employed. So that was nice. So a few more hours are passing and we're still sitting outside the studio waiting, and it's getting dark. I asked Chelsea and Larissa, you know, how they came to come all the way from Minnesota to see the show, and Chelsea told me that a psychic had told her that she would meet him, so they decided to go out on a limb and just go to New York and try to meet him. I went across the street and tried to look up into the windows of the rooms above the studio. I assumed that maybe Stephen's office was somewhere over there. I could see some people moving around, but the shades were mostly drawn, so I could not really see who they were. I couldn't see their faces. We're still waiting, and finally someone comes out, but it's not Steven. Um, it was a woman with curly hair. It might have been Allison Silverman, who was his uh, head writer at the time. Not Steven, so we just sort of smile at them and they smile at us because they know that we're waiting for Steven and, you know, look at these nerds sitting out here waiting for him. And we wait some more. And at about 1030, uh, a security guard comes out to warn us that 
after 11, they try to hustle Stephen out into his car to go home. And one of the girls asks, well, can he choose to see us? And the guy said, yes, he might. And the girls just continue to, you know, complain about how far they came to see him and how much it would mean to them. And I just feel really bad because this guy's just doing his job and, you know, Stephen has to have a life too. So, you know, I just, you know, said thank you. And he went back into the building. So then a little after 11, I look up and the lights on the second floor went out. And then the door opens, and a very familiar voice says, You guys need to find a better hobby. And it was Steven. He was finally here. And he shook all of our hands. I couldn't believe it. He just, like, looked right at me and stuck out his hand. And I shook his hand, and I just couldn't believe it. I, like, just gaped at him. I think I just, you know, my mouth opened. I just was beside myself. Chelsea and Larissa are immediately on him and like badgering him about the birthday card they sent. And Steven says, I got a lot of birthday cards. And they say it was a big one. He says, I got a lot of big ones. And they say, really? Oh, but we worked so hard on it. And Steven has that deer in the headlights look and he's just like, I loved it. So because he's in a hurry, we're doing a group picture and Larissa is like, can I please be next to him? Even though I was already happened to be standing to right next to him. And so I'm like, fine. And she gets to be next to him in the picture. He signs my audiobook, And, you know, pretty soon he has to hustle into the car. We say goodbye. Once the car pulls away, we just start jumping around and screaming. And I'm so freaking happy. And then Chelsea says that she had touched Steven's posterior during the picture taking and pretended it was an accident. She laughed. It was firm. I should have told her that she was an awful human being, but I just laughed kind of awkwardly. And I think what I got out of that experience was being glad that I was not that obsessed with him, that, you know, I didn't care about his privacy or personal space or any of that just hadn't completely lost myself and just some people meet celebrities and they're disillusioned because of how that celebrity acts because you know it turns out they're not a very nice person after all and Stephen Colbert is definitely a very nice person but it was actually meeting these other girls that kind of helped me tone down that obsession a little bit just I knew I never wanted to be that far gone that I was at the point of living my life vicariously through someone else. Hilary Carter, Oberlin College class of 2009 and former writer for The Dead Here Footsteps and the Semi-Automatic Players, now resides in Columbia, Missouri. That's it for this week's episode of The Second Page. Next week's theme is Mistakes. To hear this week's episode again or submit a story for next week, visit makesomethingeveryday.com slash second page. Thanks to all of our storytellers this week. Thanks to Emma, Miriam, Alyssa, Zoe, and Hillary. Much of the music we use this week comes from artists who license their music freely under Creative Commons licenses that allow us and anyone else to reuse and remix them. Please check out and support these artists. This week we used music from Kirk Pearson, Poddington Bear, Nine Inch Nails, Josh Woodward, as well as music from Zoe Keating used with permission. All of these artists will be listed on the website. Thanks to WOBC for putting us on the air. This week marks the start of WOBC's spring schedule. Whether or not the second page is on WOBC's spring lineup and at what time will be announced tomorrow, so be sure to check our website for when the next episode will air. Once again, the website is makesomethingeveryday.com slash second page. 
Thanks for listening. This has been The Second Page on WOBC 91.5 FM, Oberlin College and Community Radio. We'll be back next week on the internet and maybe even on the radio with stories about mistakes.